I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth Admission. Everyone's talking about the recall of San Francisco District Attorney Chesa Boudin. And even after all these months of debate, there's still so much to be said about the larger consequences of that election. How big of a setback is it for future police reforms? Are we reverting to traditional tough-on-crime strategies? And an even bigger question for San Francisco, just how progressive can the city claim to be now? While the national media often likes to paint San Francisco in broad brushstrokes, there is, of course, nuance to all of this. That's what Chronicle data reporter Susie Nielsen has been all about in her reporting leading up to the recall. She joins me today to break down how the votes went down by neighborhood, what they reveal about voter demographics, and why all those stats that showed how Boudin had very little to do with crime trends in San Francisco just didn't stick. Later, we step out of our San Francisco bubble and turn to the other races that went down on Tuesday, the state primaries. Public safety was also a central concern in many of the hottest contests on the state ballot. State Capitol reporter Dustin Gardner joins me to talk about those results, what they indicate as we head into the midterms, and why the state's two-party system hurt the chances of someone you might have heard of in the governor's race. Michael Schellenberger. The author of the book San Francisco had embodied the spirit of many recall booting supporters, tough on crime policies, and a move away from progressivism. He'll end up with less than 5% of the vote in his run against Governor Newsom. What does that say about California politics? Let's start with Susie Nielsen. Susie, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So Susie, we're talking after we know now the results of the Chesa Boudin recall election. And leading up until now, you've done a lot of great work informing our readers about the work of Chesa Boudin and its impact on crime in San Francisco. So you've been watching this for some time now. Was anything about this surprising to you? You know, not really. We had been looking at some of the polls that were commissioned in the months leading up to the recall, and the polling average was about 60% in favor of the recall, which is almost exactly what we're seeing right now with the preliminary results. There was one poll actually released earlier this week that showed the race virtually tied, but that poll was commissioned by the anti-recall effort, so we were a bit skeptical of it. Mm-hmm. So the Chronicle called the election on Tuesday night, but it's really important to note that, as you said, all this voter data right now is preliminary. About 75 percent of votes have been counted so far. Could anything change at this point with the remaining 25 percent of votes that are not counted? Yeah. So when the first batch of votes came in on Tuesday night at about 8.45 p.m., my editor, Dan Kopf, made the decision to call the election because the margin was basically so wide that there was very little chance that the vote would be overturned unless the votes were significantly different than the ones that we'd already seen, which was super unlikely. Um, And at this point, there's pretty much no chance that the results could be overturned The margin might get a little smaller, so I think we're expecting it to come out more like 58% in favor of the recall rather than the 61% that it was originally, but Mm -hmm. we're not going to see a change in the actual result. Now, this was such a consequential election. It got so much national attention. It seemed like everyone was talking about this. What was the voter turnout overall, and how did it compare to the February school board recall election? At first, we all thought that turnout was going to be historically low based on early return rates. 
But the Department of Elections recently updated its page to show that they're expecting turnout among registered voters in the city to be about 46 percent, which is actually higher than the 42 percent turnout rate of the 2019 election that voted Boudin into office. And it's a lot higher than the 36 percent turnout rate seen in the February school board recall. I think the national media attention brought out votes. And plus, as we previously reported earlier this week, the total amount raised for this recall election from both the recall and anti-recall side ended up being about $10.5 million, which is a lot for a local election. Um, Most of that money was raised by the recall campaign, whose primary donors um, included real estate groups, wealthy tech billionaires and investors, and several other kinds of executives as well. But we still don't know the full turnout numbers exactly. We'll only know that in the coming weeks. Even with the voter data that we do have, there's much that we can sort of glean about this election. And you did an analysis of voter turnout by neighborhood. And you've taken this approach in a lot of your reporting leading up to this recall election, looking at how San Francisco voters vote by neighborhood. What does that kind of analysis help us understand in terms of how San Franciscans have been engaging with this particular election? So I think it's very tempting to paint San Francisco as this singular block of a city, very blue, very liberal, very progressive. But when you look at the neighborhood level, the voters of San Francisco and the people of San Francisco vary pretty dramatically in their priorities and their positions on so many different issues. Um, So, you know, Also, the city varies a lot demographically. So we have a lot of white voters, a lot of Asian voters, a lot of Hispanic voters. We have young folks, old folks, a lot of the traditional voting groups that vary a lot at the national level. And so Mm -hmm. looking at the neighborhood level data helps us understand how the different demographics of San Francisco are voting on different positions. Mm-hmm. I think also a lot of readers are curious to see how a neighborhood like the Tenderloin, which suffers from really high rates of drug overdoses and property crime, might have voted in the Boudin recall compared to, say, a wealthy neighborhood like Seacliff on the other side of the city, which has relatively fewer crimes. Mm-hmm. So let's dive into what you found out. Which neighborhoods came out strongest against Boudin? Most neighborhoods, um, as expected, came out in favor of the recall, but the neighborhoods that came out strongest against Boudin were the Sunset, the Marina, and Pacific Heights. These are all neighborhoods with larger populations of older folks, whiter and wealthier people, as well as um, the Sunset has a pretty high share of Asian residents. And all of those populations we expected to vote in favor of the recall. And then the neighborhoods that voted against the recall were neighborhoods in the middle of the city, including Bernal Heights, The Hate, and The Mission. Right after the results were called, you and our Chronicle colleagues joined my co-host Damian Bulwa for a Twitter Spaces discussion. And you mentioned something that I think is worth noting here. San Francisco has a low Black population, and that might have been consequential for Boudin. Explain why. Yeah. So when you look at the distribution of progressive district attorneys across the U.S., you'll see that a lot of the most progressive prosecutors, the highest profile progressive prosecutors are in cities with large black populations. So Chicago, Philadelphia, those two cities specifically have very high shares of black people and black voters. And I think one possible explanation for why those cities have elected progressive prosecutors is that 
Black people and brown people often suffer disproportionately from the flaws in the criminal justice system and so are more motivated to vote for somebody who is addressing those issues. San Francisco, on the other hand, is the second least Black city in the entire country when you're looking at major cities. Only San Jose has a lower Black share of its population. So um, when you're looking at a city with only 5% Black residents, it's very likely that there's going to be less turnout in favor of a progressive prosecutor just because of that demographic shift. Mm -hmm. Aside from demographics, we know that the perception of crime has played a major role here. And you've written about this before. Why might crime or the perception of crime be different by neighborhood? There are a ton of different reasons um, why crime might be varying by different neighborhoods. I think there are certain neighborhoods in San Francisco that attract a lot of tourists and commuters. And I think a lot of people see those as places that are easy to commit property crimes because tourists have less ability to kind of protect themselves. They know a little bit less about that. Also, crime has shifted in the pandemic in San Francisco. So we did an analysis earlier this year looking at how when you just look at money-motivated crimes, so robberies, larceny thefts, burglaries, those have become actually more concentrated in wealthier neighborhoods in San Francisco over the last two years. So that could be part of the explanation for why wealthy neighborhoods like Pack Heights are coming out stronger in favor of the Boudin recall than maybe they were voting in 2019. Mm -hmm. So this whole recall election has spotlighted what's, you know, the future progressivism in San Francisco. And in your recent story, you wrote that voters in the neighborhoods who did support Boudin ranked highest in the progressive voter index. Tell me a little bit more about what that means. The Progressive Voter Index has a pretty solid history among academics, but my colleague, Nami Sumida, on the data team, uh, repurposed the Progressive Voter Index to look specifically at voting precincts in San Francisco. She basically looked at voter history by precinct on past ballot initiatives in the city and mapped them. And she found that the city kind of looks like a donut when you look at it politically. So the most progressive parts of San Francisco are located near the center of the city and include neighborhoods like the Hate and the Mission, which are neighborhoods that voted against the recall. And these neighborhoods tend to have younger populations that also tend to have fewer homeowners. And the more moderate neighborhoods tend to have more homeowners and so to vote against policies that would favor renters and vote for policies that would favor homeowners. They also tend to vote for slightly more tough on crime and pro-police criminal justice measures and vote against new taxes. So all of this is sort of aligning with a lot of maybe our gut instincts here, right? Mm -hmm, totally, yeah. So to zoom out a little bit, we know back in 2019 when Boudin was elected to the office, he won by a pretty thin margin. How do we compare that election to this one? What makes this recall election different? I mean, the turnout looks really different. As we'd said before, the neighborhoods that voted against Boudin in 2019 turned out more this time than the neighborhoods that voted for him. Um, I think this election was also cast as a mandate against one candidate, and he didn't have any opposition. It was just a, are you with Boudin or are you against him? Um, so people were basically registering their approval or disapproval of one guy which makes the stakes very different than they were in 2019 when you had people voting for Chesa alongside the mayor, the sheriff, um, the public defender, etc. I think this election, we're also still in a pandemic and a major economic squeeze and a time when that's impacting a lot of different people in the city. 
And we've had two years of media reports of individual instances of brazen theft. And while those aren't necessarily reflective of broader trends, as we see in the data, they've been amplified over and over again by local politicians, local outlets, along with national politicians and outlets like Fox News and President Joe Biden. So, Susie, your work has been so critical. Your data reporting has highlighted for our readers that Boudin really, in fact, didn't have a lot to do with broader crime rates and trends in San Francisco. But even despite that, voters felt differently. What do you think was the ultimate sort of disconnect for San Franciscans here? I think bottom line, a lot of San Franciscans feel less safe right now. And um, I think that's partially because the pandemic threw a lot of the city's longstanding issues with property crime, drug overdoses, homelessness into sharper relief. So, you know, we've done a lot of data analysis showing that overall crime has decreased. We actually recently got updated numbers on the number of homeless people in San Francisco that show that there are fewer homeless people in the city now. But because there were fewer commuters, fewer tourists, and then certain types of crime got more common, that all contributed to making people feel like the city was less safe and less prosperous. And then, you know, enter the Yes on Recall campaign, which was run really effectively and tied Boudin directly to residents' feelings about changes to the city. Um, and it didn't help that Boudin entered his office two months before the pandemic began and upended everything. Then, you know, his office was implicated in some of these really high-profile crimes that happened during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can show people charts of property crime going down all day, but that's not going to change the fact that people feel really differently, especially when you show them at the same time viral videos of shoplifters and attach the words Chesa Boudin to those videos. Mm -hmm. Basically, I think this election was an opportunity for voters to register their displeasure with the direction of San Francisco. And a handful of voters took that opportunity. Susie, thank you so much for your insight, as always. Yeah, thanks, Cecilia. Susie Nielsen is a data reporter at The Chronicle. You can find her in Nami Sumita's story about the recall election results broken down by San Francisco neighborhoods at sfchronicle.com and on the Chronicle app. Be sure to check out the newsroom's ongoing coverage of the Boudin recall as well. After a quick break, I'm joined by state capital reporter Dustin Gardner to talk about the state primary races. Will Boudin's recall have a ripple effect as we head into the fall midterms? He'll explain. We'll be right back. You can support the newsroom that creates Fifth Emission by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. Dustin Gardner, we've been talking a lot about the successful recall of San Francisco District Attorney Chesa Boudin, but you've also been keeping an eye on state election races which ones in particular were you looking at and why? I was really following the state attorney general's election. Um, I think th there could be a lot of attention around this race in the fall um, between the top two candidates to see if the sort of tough on crime messaging that really seemed to resonate in the district attorney's race with Boudin's recall, if that translates into any sort of statewide contest. So I was keeping an eye on that. Also keeping an eye on the governor's race, obviously, because it is you know the, the top position in the state. And also just looking to see if there's really any surprises. Um, aside from you know the recall in San Francisco, it has been a pretty tame primary election season uh, at the statewide level. And so we're watching for any surprises. 
So let's talk about both those races, starting with the attorney general race. Rob Bonta was a progressive former legislator from Alameda. He was appointed by the governor last year and is advancing to the midterm. We saw a turn against progressivism in San Francisco with Boudin's recall. What does this particular race with the attorney general say about the state as a whole? I think there's going to be a lot of people questioning whether some of that public sentiment that we saw in San Francisco, the frustration with progressive policies on on criminal justice reform, if that does translate to the state level. And, you know, I talked to a lot of political observers in the last week about this, looking ahead to the attorney general's race. And, uh, you know, a lot of them said that it is a lot different um, when you get to the attorney general level than, you know, the local prosecutor level, prosecutors at, at the city level, the county level, they're dealing with specific cases, you know, they're often associated with, or in Boudin's case, blamed for specific instances when people are released early and go on to commit um, further crimes. But it is different in some ways with the attorney general, because this is the, the state's top law enforcement official. They're not you know, out there dealing with a lot of specific cases, they're setting broader policy and they're dealing also with a lot of civil policy and a lot of sort of consumer fraud issues beyond the criminal issues. So I think, yeah, there will definitely be a strong GOP effort to try to make some sort of momentum bleed over from the, the, the Chase of Boudin recall and also the potential pending recall of George Gascon, the Los Angeles district attorney who used to be the San Francisco district attorney, another progressive. Republicans are going to try and make a case that both of those recall efforts will bleed over into the state AG's race because they do feel like the policies of the attorney general seep down to the local level in in their mind. But again, I think Democrats will counter that by saying that the state attorney general really is not the person um, with their hands, um, you know, on the ground dealing with specific cases. And all three of Bonta's challengers have a tough on crime approach. That includes Anne-Marie Schubert. Schubert ran without a party label. She's an independent. And as you note in your recent story, that might have hurt her chances at the AG gig. Tell me more about that. Yeah, Anne-Marie Schubert, she's pretty well known in the criminal justice world. She's famous for being the prosecutor that um, went after the Golden State Killer, a a famous serial killer um, that went undetected for a lot of years. And, you know, she handled that case and gained a lot of notoriety for that. She used to be a Republican, but she left the party after she was reelected as uh, Sacramento County's district attorney back in 2018. And Schubert really took a gamble trying to run statewide as an independent. I think her calculus was that she could have more of a, a broader bipartisan appeal by not, you know, pigeonholing herself as a Republican. But that really doesn't seem to have worked for her. Schubert really imploded in the primary. At this point, she's um, under 8% in early unofficial results. She really has no chance of coming back. There are, however, two um, conservative Republican challengers that are in a tight race to run against Bonta. And whoever gets that number two spot will go on to the general election and face Bonta then. And those two Republicans are Nathan Hockman. Uh, he's a former U.S. attorney, pretty conservative Republican, but also is trying tried to sort of moderate his tone in the primary. And then you have Eric Early. He's a Los Angeles attorney who has a very pro-Trump brand of Republican politics that he really has not been apologetic or shy about that. And so Hawkman and Early are battling it out for that second spot still. Let's talk about another independent that went after the governor's seat, Michael Schellenberger. Many people might be familiar with him. He's quite a controversial figure in San Francisco politics. He's weighed in on a lot of issues here, including crime, drug overdoses, 
homelessness. He's been against so-called wokeism and left the Democratic Party last year to become independent. He sort of embodies a lot of the sentiments that Recall Boudin supporters have, but his message has also fallen flat for California voters. Tell me more about that. Yeah, so Schellenberger jumped into the governor's race, and he had just a really disastrous showing. I mean, he's at under 4% of the vote um, in unofficial returns. And I think this sort of shows that, on one hand, um, that Schellenberger just it really isn't that well-known outside of the Bay Area. I think that explains a lot of it. Um, you know, his sort of controversial activism is well-known uh, up in this part of, of the state, but he's not so well-known in Southern California. So I, I think that's one factor. The second factor is, you know, Governor Newsom, remains incredibly popular and it's really hard you know for someone to challenge him just given the advantage he has as an incumbent and number three you know Schellenberger ran as an independent and independents just have a really hard time resonating in the state and that just mirrors what we know about how independents fare in state elections right tell me a little bit about how the trends usually are with independents Tuesday's election with Schubert and both Schellenberger stumbling so hard, it really is illustrative of the longtime challenges that independents have running statewide, especially in a state as big as California, a state with 39.5 million people. And you know, I talked to several political scientists about why that is, why independents have such a hard time getting traction here. And part of it really comes down to name ID. In a state this big, you really have to be well-known outside of just one region or one county. You have to be well-known, you know, to nearly 40 million people. And a lot of voters, they're just voting party line. They're voting for a Democrat or a Republican without necessarily knowing who the candidates are. And so if you're an independent, you don't really have a brand unless you're someone really famous, unless you're a celebrity or you're a billionaire and you can self-fund your campaign. So that's one of the big hurdles. And you know, one of the other aspects to it that some political observers described is just kind of the increasingly tribal nature of politics nowadays mm -hmm. that Democrats and Republicans Americans. They don't see party as necessarily an expression of policy values, um, or they're not really voting for specific people. They're clinging to tribes that speak to their personal identity and how they sort of see themselves um, in terms of the culture war that the United States is dealing with in our fractured political system. So those are a couple of the big picture hurdles independents have. And there's just also a lot of smaller structural hurdles. Um, for example, Democrats and Republicans they can receive unlimited contributions and spending from their parties. The state parties can spend as much money as they want to support their candidates. Independents don't have anything like that. You know, anyone that gives to an independent is going to be subject to contribution limits. Um, so just, you know, across the board, there's really just a lot of disadvantages that make it hard for any independent to make a splash. And what was voter turnout like across the state? How does it compare to other primary years? Yeah, last I checked, we were at about 17% turnout across the state. There's still a lot of ballots that need to be counted in different counties. You know, there's a lot of mail ballots that were dropped off in the last few days of the election that counties have not processed. But even so, the fact that we're at 17% at this point really suggests that we could have pretty exceptionally low turnout uh, for a primary election. Typically in off-year elections, when there's a primary and you know the governor's seat and all these other statewide seats are up for election, those are typically you know drawing about 37, 38% turnout in recent years. And for us to get to where we're at with 17% turnout, to, to get up to that, I think it's going to get hard 
for us to get even close this election cycle. So it really does suggest that voters really were just not that interested this time around. There's also definitely a lot of political fatigue, but people have been eager to talk about issues of crime. And Dustin, many of the hottest contests from Tuesday are helping us understand where voters stand on those issues. Can we make any larger conclusions about what maybe Democrats will have to face later in the fall? I think it is fair to say that tough on crime politics is going to continue to be a big part of the discussion. Uh, you know, we saw with the San Francisco recall, obviously that was a big issue. We talked about how George Gascon's recall in Los Angeles could be getting on the ballot fairly soon. Supporters of that recall effort are still gathering signatures. We talked about in the attorney general's race, how this could come up and how that could be an attack against Rob Bonta. And then even if you look at the LA mayor's race, um, billionaire Rick Caruso, he was in first place in the primary um, and is likely to be facing Congresswoman Karen Bass in a runoff. And Caruso really ran on tough on crime issues as well. He spent a lot of his own money talking about how he would would work hard to clear homeless encampments and how he wanted to take a tougher on crime approach. So I think across the board, it seems like that theme has a, a lot of traction. It'll present a challenge for Democrats in the fall. They need to be ready to counter that because it's definitely something Republicans are going to keep playing on. Were there any other standout election results from this past primary that were notable for you, that there were other seats that were important to discuss, like Secretary of State, State Controller, among others? I think one of the most interesting is going to be the race for State Controller's office. Um, not a lot of people typically pay attention to that election. The State Controller is essentially California's fiscal watchdog. They're kind of like an auditor that pays attention to the way different state agencies are handling their funding. And yeah, usually it is a down ballot, sort of low attention race. But this time around, it could get a lot of attention because there is a Republican, Lonnie Chen, who is a political consultant. He was in first place after the primary. He has about 37% of the vote right now. So he's definitely headed to the November runoff, and he'll likely face Democrat uh, Malia Cohen, who is the current chair of the State Board of Equalization. They'll face off in November, and it'll be interesting because no Republican has won a statewide race in California since 2006. We've had mm. a really long stretch of, of Democrats dominating state elections, and Chen presents an opportunity for the party, probably their best this go-around, to potentially re capture a statewide seat. And while it's not the most powerful seat, it symbolically, I think it means a lot to Republicans to feel like they are competitive on some level. I'm sure we'll be chatting more as we head into the midterms. Dustin, thanks so much. Good to be with you. Dustin Gardner is a state capital reporter at The Chronicle. Find his coverage of the primaries at sfchronicle.com and on The Chronicle app. All election coverage, both local and state, are on the site now. You can find live election results as those final ballots are being tallied, as well as ongoing political analysis by our team of reporters. Thanks to Karen Creighton for producing this episode and to you for listening.